The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Aw Them Bones, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Well, you did it. You did it. You all done did it. This is what happens. This is what happens. My name is Justin Robert Young. This is the Politics, Politics, Politics program for October 7th, 2020, 28 days until the election. This thing has been so sloppy, so petty, so drama-packed that you reawoke Fleetwood Mac. You did. Dreams, number nine on the current music charts. Reawoken from such a dormant slumber. Not since the Lovecraftian old gods have we had revisited upon us such a horror. Fleetwood Mac is back. What's next? The Eagles? I swear to God, if you TikTok kids start playing Take It to the Limit while you're doing a a handstand or something... Trump should have banned it. He should have. All right. Uh, Guys, we have a big, big, big show for you today. A breakdown of the vice presidential debate that happens tonight. We have a good old-fashioned sex scandal. Oh. We have a COVID timeline for Trump. We're going to break down exactly what he is saying And how it jives with the idea that he wants to compete in his second presidential debate, which is set to take place next week in Miami. We also have a great interview about Congress. The other big drama over the past 48 hours has been the negotiations of uh, the COVID relief deal. It's on again. It's off again. Uh, We have the host, Jen Briney of the Congressional Dish Podcast, is here to help us with all of it. But first... The hard truth is, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. We have a president who turns our tragedies into political weapons. We will make America great again. Again. Where were you when the stakes were so high? We will tell them what we did. Oh, baby! Vice presidential debate time. Uh, That is tonight Salt Lake City, Kamala Harris, and. Mike Pence behind plexiglass. Those are the pictures being shared from the venue today. You know, normally I got a lot of stuff written out about this, and and normally there's at least a linear path of what this election is and should and will be, right? You're able to sort of follow a few through lines, and therefore the vice presidential debate sort of falls into a counterweight position. 
Uh, if the president did bad, then the vice president wants to step up. If the president did good, then they want to steady things. By and large, the vice presidential candidates are put into kind of dual roles. Number one, don't make a mistake. And number two, be the attack dog. Say the things that the president doesn't want to say. Because that would be below the dignity of the office. As we have seen, those rules of engagement have changed. Because Donald Trump doesn't believe that any soundbite should be wasted on anybody but him. And so he's going to say any and everything, you know, dignity of the office, quote unquote, be damned. And Kamala Harris, who you would think would be tailor made to be the attack dog, has kind of been muzzled. She had an unforced error on the vaccine question couple weeks ago that got brought up during the first presidential debate so Trump obviously wants to talk about it I presume Pence will bring it up but since then she hasn't really been out there you know uh, taking big shots at anybody if anything we've seen a more kind and gentle Kamala Harris so what is this gonna be good lord I, I, I don't I don't know I don't even really know what the what 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 the lines on strategy would be. Like in a normal world where the president didn't get COVID, you would presume that Pence would try to bring a level of calm that Trump did not, that could steady the boat. But I, I suspect we're probably going to see a debate that revolves around COVID with Pence wanting to take charge on COVID because he was the head of the COVID relief crew. That's not what it was called. <laughs> the COVID relief committee, the COVID the coronavirus task force. That's it. That's it. Mike Pence, probably better than Donald Trump, is going to be able to calmly walk through, here is what we were told, here is what we communicated, here is what we did. I would not be surprised if Pence has a good night tonight. I think that he has been underrated whenever people have talked about this potential matchup mostly because Kamala Harris was so sparkling during the Kavanaugh hearing. She was incisive. She was very prosecutorial against Kavanaugh. She has that very lawyerly, like, she has, like, one hand up that's kind of, like, near her head, and she, like, looks down and only really, like, raises her eyes when, like, the final fangs are sinking in. She's got that. She, she does that very, very well. But Pence, for the fact that he looks as boring as a gallon of white milk that you are painting off-white, so you are now watching that off-white paint on white milk dry, he is somebody that can talk. The man hosted a radio show. I think he looks boring next to Trump, but if you were to put him up in in the old version of of the Republican meta, 
Put him next to Ted Cruz. Put him next to Jeb Bush. Put him next to Marco Rubio. And I think that he looks fairly charismatic for that old version. Look, that's an old model. We're going to see much more bombastic Republicans in the future, regardless of what happens in this election. But I think Pence can hold his own. I also think that there's a chance that he comes out more reassuring on coronavirus than Kamala is destructive. It really depends on how much they let her go. Like, there seems to be a sense from the Biden team that the the goal now is coast. Just don't make mistakes. Whatever you do, that just don't give any oxygen to the Trump administration. This is, they are betting all of this on this is about the Trump show. The difference between 2016 and 2020 is that in 2016, people were curious about the pilot. And in 2020, they are ready to cancel this thing after the first season. So as much as it has become understood precognition, specifically amongst liberal circles, that Kamala Harris will just decapitate and embarrass Mike Pence on stage. I don't know if she's going to be that aggressive. I think her, her charge might be to be likable just to be somebody that is is almost over-congenial to Pence, to demonstrate that, hey, look, we are the post-partisan ticket. That Joe Biden is going to be the president to everybody, and as long as you're not talking over me, then uh, we can have a spirited discussion of the issues. But Kamala's not going to be too mean. Pence is going to say what he says. And ultimately, the Biden campaign, even if this is a quote-unquote loss, can count on the fact that the big chungus comes back next Thursday. If he comes back next Thursday, we'll talk about that in a second. But Trump will not be far out of the headlines. He will always be able to reassert himself. And any, let's say Mike Pence was able to give the command performance. And and totally outclasses Kamala. It's going to be erased in two seconds when Donald Trump goes on yet another tweet thread. So, if that's possible, and we've always understood that Kamala Harris is the, 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 the prosecutor who is going to pants pence, then honestly, anything is in play. So, since I don't have any particularly brilliant thoughts about how and why things are going to go the way they are going to go tonight, instead, I will tickle the history nerd underbelly of this listenership. Let's remember some of the best moments from past vice presidential debates. We begin with Admiral James Stockdale. He was Ross Perot's vice president. And this was his opening line from the 1992 vice presidential debate 
wherein he did battle with Al Gore and Dan Quayle. Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> All right, that's a fun little appetizer. Uh, by the way, Stockdale didn't do himself any favors. Right after he said that, he lost track of his talking points and had to reach down and grab his thick-ass Coke bottle glasses that he put on his face to finish his opening statement, which made the who am I, why am I here, slightly less a super funny introduction in the way that it landed in that clip you heard and more of a confused senior citizen. So, not great for the Admiral. But, let's do a little bit more of a subtle clip from the past. The year is 2004. Dick Cheney and George W. Bush are both running for re-election. George W. Bush uh, has already debated John Kerry. It was thought to be a loss for George W. Bush. That means that Dick Cheney is now going to debate a pre-scandalous ruin, John Edwards. One of the issues that has roiled the country is gay marriage. A reminder, a Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court in 2003 made it legal for gay and lesbian couples to marry in the state. Now, despite the fact that John Kerry and John Edwards are not for same-sex marriage, they do know that being supportive is a animating element of their voters. They don't want to go full bore there, but, but they want to hint at it. And more specifically, they want to shame their opposition. Enter Mary Cheney a younger daughter of Lynn and Dick. She is, at this point, working in the Cheney administration, in, in, in his vice presidential administration. She is brought up here initially in a question by Glenn Eiffel. Well, no, Glenn Eiffel, the, the moderator, brings up same-sex marriage. It is John Edwards who brings up Mary. Now, I want you to listen to this quote by John Edwards and then realize that when Glenn Eiffel goes to Dick Cheney, he's got 90 seconds to answer and go ahead and just count on your hands how long he needs to answer the question. Let me say first that I think the vice president and his wife love their daughter. I think they love her very much. And, and you can't have anything but respect for the fact that they're willing to talk about the fact that they have a gay daughter, the fact that they embrace her. It's a wonderful thing. And there are millions of parents like that who love their children, who want their children to be happy. Mr. Vice President, you have 90 seconds. Well, Gwen, let me simply uh, thank the Senator for the kind words he said about uh, my family and and our daughter, I appreciate that very much. That's it. That's it. Okay, then we'll move on to the next question. This one is for you. By the way, 
John Kerry also thought that was going to be a winning line and made mention of Mary Cheney in the next presidential debate for which Dick Cheney responded. You saw a man who will say anything to do uh, in order to get elected. And I'm not just speaking as a father here, although I am a pretty angry father. Mary Cheney has since come out and said that she did not agree with the Bush administration's uh, stance on same-sex marriage, which at that point was civil unions. Uh, and she has had a public falling out with her sister, Liz Cheney, who is in Congress. And uh, they have had a, a public back and forth. Although I do think that there is an overarching Cheney credo that they don't like having these kind of family feuds pop out into the public. All right. We really can't touch on vice presidential debates without touching on what I think are the two most consequential. We had Joe Biden versus Paul Ryan in 2012. But really, one of my favorite debates of all time, and again, I've watched or read all of them because we had to make a card game based on the quotes. It is Joe Biden versus Sarah Palin. What I have for you here is an edited summation of just the first question of that debate. The House of Representatives this week passed a bill, a big bailout bill, or didn't pass it, I should say. The Senate decided to pass it. Was this the worst of Washington or the best of Washington that we saw play out? Neither the best or worst of Washington. Evidence of the fact that the economic policies of the last eight years have been the worst economic policies we've ever had. You know, I think a good barometer here as we try to figure out, has this been a good time or a bad time in America's economy is go to a kid's soccer game on Saturday and turn to any parent there on the sideline and ask them, how are you feeling about the economy? And I'll bet you, you're gonna hear some fear. The barometer there, I think, is gonna be resounding. Two Mondays ago, John McCain said at nine o'clock in the morning, that the fundamentals of the economy were strong. He's out of touch. He was talking to, and he was talking about the American workforce, the greatest in this world. That's a positive, that's encouragement, and that's what John McCain meant. It's truly had that track record of reform, and I've joined this team that is a team of Mavericks with John McCain, also with his track record of reform. Just get the job done. Get down to getting business done. We're tired of the old politics. I think Americans are craving something new and different, and that new energy and that new commitment that's gonna come with reform Form. I think that's why we need to send the Maverick from the Senate and put him in the White House, and I'm happy to join him there. Governor, Senator, neither of you really answer that last question. Lest we are to believe that the idea of turning straight up field, looking the camera dead in the eye, ignoring the question, and just talking about whatever the hell you want to talk about was invented sometime after 2016... Please understand that the past is prologue and Joe Biden is no stranger to it. And neither was Sarah Palin. She was really kind of a natural. It's it's sort of a shock. I mean, it shows you how self-destructive she must be that she never really even got back on that horse. Like she never really ran for anything again. Like, I guess she's just making money on her Facebook page. Who knows? But. That that uh, that debate specifically was one in which either of them really embarrassed themselves, but it demonstrated that this is uh, 
you know, it really heralded the new age. Both of the Joe Biden debates really did herald a new age in debating because the one he did in 2012 was the one where he uh, uh, was, you know, using interruptions and uh, uh, derisive laughter and stuff like that as a way to control his opposition. He didn't do that here with Palin, but he was certainly turning on the old folksy Scranton Joe charm to 11 to counter the fact that Palin's only real advantage there was the fact that she was charismatic and new. So Biden had to just let everybody know, hey, by the way, my our ticket has more new than your ticket has. It's just the fact that we are mismatched here. And also, I'm not going to make fun of a woman too much. But let me just tell you about the time that my papa said that an oil can is kind of like a table without a lazy Susan. Well, if you can't get it to go, then you better get it to leave. Anyway, give me a soda pop. I'm going to put a nickel in the jukebox. There was a lot of that. But I loved it. At the time, it was the closest thing that you got to, like, entertainment, entertainment in a debate. These days, we might have a surplus. I don't suspect that's what we're going to find tonight, though. I think tonight is probably going to be a little bit more of a throwback, which might make people love it, to be honest with you. It might be boring as hell, and everybody will be like, thank God. Thank God it was so boring. Would make my day to roll over and kiss you right about now. You're so sweet. I would enjoy that. You are historically sexy. When can I see you? I want to kiss you. And I kiss back. A lot. Happy birthday. I want to unwrap you today only gift that comes to mind. Kissy face emoji. Miss you and dream about you. Imagine that you're North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis. You are in a tough re-election battle. You have no idea what kind of help you are going to get from the top of your ticket in Donald Trump, and you just got COVID. Well, it seems like you're really up S Creek without a paddle. Until those text messages that we just played start unfurling. Credit to the conservative website nationalfile.com who got the scoop. That is Democratic candidate for Senate Cal Cunningham swapping sex and arranging a meet with the wife of an army veteran. In a world where all politics are local, it is important to point out here that North Carolina is a place for which military bases are located and people banging the wives of soldiers is something that plays different there than it would in a place without a large military installation. Things do get indeed more scandalous from here. Uh, Arlene Guzman Todd has since gone on the record with the Associated Press confirming that they indeed did have a physical affair confirming what she said in subsequent text messages that she spent a week at the man's house and left because it was weird quote 
F-wording in another woman's house. She then goes on to lament the fact that Cunningham is not paying her enough attention, saying that she wants to F him one last time and break his heart. She then goes on to say that she is going to send his opponent nude photos of Cunningham to teach him a lesson for not paying enough attention to her. Cunningham has admitted to the affair. He was chased down by a local television station, and this was his reaction. Can you tell us about this relationship? When did it start? Why have you been so unwilling to talk about this for the last well, week? Now? Look, I've made it clear that I've hurt my family and that I've disappointed my supporters. That doesn't, and I'm taking responsibility for that. This is uh, this campaign is not about my personal life, and I appreciate your question. The campaign is about the people of North Carolina. That's what I'm staying focused on. I'm going to make the strongest argument possible for why, though they'll see my name on the ballot, it's their health care, it's about their jobs, their higher wages. That's what I'm, I'm sorry. Sometimes life just gets too poetic. The idea that Cal Cunningham is caught on this, and then as he's giving his non-answer answer, there's literally a truck backing up that makes the telltale beep, 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 as he tries to make this better is just too rich. I, I, I couldn't help but play that clip for you guys. It was just so funny to me. For the record, according to the Real Clear Politics Average, Cal Cunningham is, uh, I guess, was running around five to six points ahead of Tom Tillis. Two polls have come out since this news first broke. One, an East Carolina University poll that had Tillis up one. The other, a PPP poll that had Cunningham up Six, will this affect the race? We will find out. But when we talk about October surprises, this is traditionally what we mean by them. An embarrassing secret that uh, comes to light at the worst possible moment. Skeletons in the closet that conga line out just as you are about to pop the question. That's that's what we're talking about here. And we certainly get it with Cal Cunningham and Tom Tillis. Keep an eye on this race. All right. One quick note here. Uh, and, and that is uh, keeping an eye on Donald Trump's covid situation. For whatever you think about the truth of this. And, and I have no reason to disbelieve the, the White House doctor. You might. That's fine. I'm going to operate under the assumption that what they're telling us is the truth. Uh, This is the Wednesday morning health update from Sean Connolly, the personal physician to Donald Trump. I'm going to read this in full. The president this morning says, I feel great. His physical exam and vital signs, including oxygen saturation and respiratory rate, all remain stable and in normal range. He's now been fever free for more than four days and symptom-free for over 24 hours. He has not needed nor received any supplemental oxygen since his initial hospitalization. Of note today, the president's labs demonstrated detectable levels of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies 
from labs drawn on Monday, October 5th. Initial levels drawn late Thursday night were undetectable. We will continue to closely monitor and I will update you as we know more. I read that to you so I can read this to you. This is the CDC's official recommendations for people with COVID-19. Isolation and precautions can generally be discontinued 10 days after symptom onset and resolution of fever for at least 24 hours without the use of fever-reducing medications with improvement of other symptoms. That would mean if his symptoms came on Friday, that's why he went to the hospital, it will be 13 days from that point to the Miami debate against Joe Biden. If his fever is gone next Thursday, so you just can't have a fever, you can get out of isolation 10 days after symptom onset. That means that Trump would be coming up on those 10 days Monday or Tuesday, depending on when he he felt uh, that the, the first symptoms coming on. This is according to the CDC. So we want to continue watching, obviously, what happens. We want to continue watching the health. But I did just want to match what is officially coming out of the White House with the CDC recommendations on when you are contagious and when you are allowed to not have uh, precautions that involve isolation and quarantine. Obviously, COVID-19 is not something that has a linear path for many uh, people who get it. But there is no doubt that Donald Trump is getting the best care in the world for it. So we will see. But as of now, if this kind of guidance is what we continue to get from the White House and we know what these CDC guidelines are, then it does look more likely that Donald Trump's called shot that he is going to be in Miami to debate Joe Biden is something that will happen, which means we can then move into the question Is Trump going to have shortness of breath? Is he going to be as aggressive just from a physical perspective? Are we literally going to just be watching two old men wheeze on each other with plexiglass in between them? Oh boy, cross your fingers. Guys, the response that you have had for TakePoliticsSeriously.com is nothing short of inspiring. I I really, 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 really appreciate it. And uh, I I, I just want to say thank you. This has been a year of gratitude for me. Uh, I've been very, very, very pleased to uh, put in the kind of work that I think you guys deserve for your hard-earned cash. I am not here to cash in on outrage. I am here to give you the value that your hard-earned buck can buy you. 
And it is with that that I let you know there is more value on the way. And I mean that literally. We announced on Friday's episode, because I knew it was going to be a very heavily downloaded one, myself and Andrew Heaton have entered into an alliance. Yes, the political orphanage and politics, politics, politics for the duration until and through the election will be the politics, 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 orphanage alliance. The PPPOA. But what you didn't know is that Andrew Heaton has decamped from Oklahoma and is on his way to Oakland as I speak. So not only will you get our perspectives, but you're going to get it in the same room once he passes a COVID test. And at that point, we are open to do a bunch of other stuff, including uh, I'm going to rope him into some of our live coverage. I don't think he's going to get here for the VP debate, but for the next debate, for sure. For emergency podcasts, absolutely. The way to get the most of it and to get it early is to get on the Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com From this point until Election Day to get on the maximum level, that is two bonus podcasts every week along with the two free ones. And I did an emergency podcast for all patrons yesterday to get that custom RSS feed, $9.00. Oh, by the way, that custom RSS feed next Tuesday is going to get you another awesome thing. A co-production of Politics, Politics, Politics and the Daily Tech News Show. All about Prop 22. This is a California proposition that could redefine gig work for the entire country should it pass. The whole history behind the law The arguments on either side, you know the tech you can trust from DTNS and the facts-based independent analysis of politics, politics, politics ain't going to steer you wrong. That happens next Tuesday and you get it early if you are a patron. And again, to be the maximum level of access to the content until election day, it's only Nine dollars, not even nine ninety nine. Keep that ninety nine cents. Nine dollars flat. That's what it costs for you to get in on this coverage. At least four episodes a week. Sometimes five. This week you're gonna get five. Plus extra bonus Andrew Heaton. Guys, I'm trying to make it worth your while. And hopefully I am. The way you guys have responded to it, I assume so. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Our guest today is the host of the Congressional Dish podcast. She is great. And I'm, I'm shocked that we hadn't talked before. Let's welcome her to the program, why don't you? Welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
Now, I, I want to th- start this off by saying a thank you to, uh, I guess we have a mutual listener that uh, 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 shouted us both out on, on Twitter a couple weeks ago because by the time that we are able to schedule this interview, it happened to land right in the middle of a lot of high stakes, crazy congressional stuff. Uh, let's start here. The long uh, uh, game of chicken between the House and the and and the Senate and the White House on a uh, new round of COVID stimulus has now hit uh, a, a through the looking glass moment when <laughs> what looked to be promising negotiations then exploded on Twitter with Donald Trump saying that he is bringing his aides away from the table and then saying that he's all for piecemeal negotiations. Before we get into the presidential side of this, where would you describe where these negotiations were before the cataclysm happened yesterday on Twitter.com? Well, the honest to God truth is that they were kind of nowhere because Mitch McConnell and the Republicans got everything they wanted in the CARES Act back back in March. And so they really don't have any incentive to have a good faith negotiation because you have to keep in mind that the Republican Party, and this is based on my eight years of studying these people, I didn't expect this to be what I found, but the Republican Party really are servants of the investor class. And so in the CARES Act negotiations, which were done behind closed doors by Stephen Mnuchin, Republican, Mitch McConnell, Republican, and Chuck Schumer, Democrat, but also a servant of the investor class. In that bill, they got $4.5 trillion essentially to prop up the corporations because the way that it works is they gave that to the Treasury and the Federal Reserve by giving the Treasury and the Federal Reserve four hundred and fifty billion dollars that they can then using, you know, Fed magic where they leverage that into four point five trillion dollars. That's an enormous amount of money. And so these companies are able to sell bonds, which the Federal Reserve is buying. They're even buying junk bonds for the first time in history. And so the investor class is fine, which we're seeing based on the fact that the stock market just keeps on hitting record highs. So they're fine. And so when you look at that situation, What's been happening ever since is that the Democrats did not fight for everything that we thought that we would need, and they put a lot of end dates on things. And so, as we know, a lot of the things that were designed to help workers and regular people have already expired. But without this incentive of the corporations coming for things, the only exception being the airlines, because the airlines need money as of September 30th. So that's like the one bargaining chip that the Democrats really have. But even the airlines still have access to that, you know, Federal Reserve money cannon. And so there just isn't a lot of incentives for the Republicans to come to the table and provide more money. And so you're seeing this dynamic of the Democrats saying like, people need money and the Republicans continue to say no. And so what was happening and what I am convinced of is that there wasn't really going to be any more COVID relief before the next government funding law becomes law, because those are always opportunities to attach all kinds of things that can't become law on their own. In fact, we just missed an opportunity with that with government funding because it expired on September 30th. And so by not using the leverage they had with government funding, that's now been kicked to December 11th. I had absolutely no hope that we were getting any government funding to begin with. And so then when Trump all roided up 
decided to start <laughs> tweeting yesterday. Yeah. The only thing that was amazing to me, I was just like, how dumb are you? Because as before that tweet, you could place all of the responsibility on the lack of COVID relief onto Congress. Yeah. And then Trump just inserted himself out of nowhere and said, no, 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 I take the blame. So that was the most amazing part of that for me. But I, regardless of what he said, really wasn't expecting any COVID relief before the election. So let, let's take it one step back from there. And, and I had understood that obviously Mitch McConnell was not able to get anybody any kind of consensus amongst the senate republicans from the beginning right and so let's let's go with your uh uh, uh well-reasoned uh, explanation that this was because they had already gotten what they wanted previously and so now they didn't need to uh but it did seem like well i mean at least the senate uh, uh republicans did pass a 800 million dollar bill or attempted to pass an 800 million dollar version of it which compared to the 2.2 trillion that the house was asking for is obviously a non-starter but there did seem to be some push for something that included paycheck protection plan loans and some level of unemployment and some level of direct stimulus yeah where does nancy pelosi and her negotiations with steven mnuchin fit into this because the way that I had understood it is as soon as Mitch McConnell isn't able to get his ducks in a row, now Nancy Pelosi is the power player in saying, hey, look, if I can strike a deal with Mnuchin, then at the very least, the Republicans have to act like they absolutely are not willing to make a deal by not taking up uh, whatever the deal is between both the White House and, and, and the House Democrats. Well, Nancy Pelosi wants to have a giant package. Yeah. So she's not willing to accept anything smaller, which I think is very frustrating. I mean, even just the dynamic that we're talking about right here, yeah. let's just acknowledge that the fact that Nancy Pelosi and Stephen Mnuchin, who is not in Congress and therefore isn't supposed to be writing laws to begin with, <laughs> are doing all of this behind closed doors is just baffling to me because the way this is supposed to work yeah. is that there are committees of jurisdiction that are supposed to be playing a lot of roles in this. And so by completely skipping the whole congressional part of writing yeah. laws, that's what's really making this a problem. Because there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines going like, this is what I was elected to do. Why am I not in the room? And so there actually is a group of people in Congress. It's a bipartisan group. They call themselves the Problem Solvers Caucus that has gotten together and said, okay, listen, there's a lot of things that we don't agree on right now, but right now the American people have nothing. So let's work together and write a bill on the stuff that we can agree on. And those things do exist. Yeah. And Nancy Pelosi won't let them in the room. So what I have witnessed is the leadership of both parties really wanting to control every single bit of this and do it all behind closed doors. And the rest of our representatives are expected to just go along with whatever they want to happen. In the beginning of this six months ago, that is exactly what was happening. Everyone is falling in line. I do have some hope now because of the Problem Solvers Caucus and a lot of people like Justin Amash keeps tweeting about this like every day, just being like, we're supposed to have a role in this. So yeah. I do think that the rank and file is starting to revolt against the leadership. But that's the main dynamic of all of this that I'm looking at. So it's like Nancy Pelosi wants this one thing, but there's 535 people in Congress. It shouldn't be up to just her. So 
and 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 I I have said not only on on this but every other outlet that I've had that uh, uh, I hope everybody is very very excited uh, if they are short on their rent that they can now let their landlord know that they can pay them in partisan wins because that is pretty much <laughs> the only thing that is going to come out of this negotiation is there will be plenty of partisan wins for for everybody everybody can feel really good that their side was principled in their stances and did not cede any ground to their opposition. So please print that out and hand that to your credit card uh, company the next time that they're asking you for money. <laughs> like Dumb and Dumber, just point at that and say it's as, it's as good as cash, right? At least uh, in, in the eyes of the leadership. What is Nancy Pelosi asking for? When, when you said that this is a, a massive package, and again, $2.2 trillion is no small uh, amount of coin. The Republicans have uh, uh, tarred it as a bailout for Democrat-run states and cities. What is this money? Well, I mean, the Democrats want a lot of things. And so, and they really are fighting for the people. I do have to say that because they do want to extend the unemployment insurance that is running out for people in states all over this country, including the extra payments that were filling in the holes. Because I've been on unemployment before. It doesn't cover all of your no. lost income. And so they, they are fighting for those payments. They are fighting for states and cities to get payments because our states and cities are going broke, which is kind of ironic that the Republicans don't want to fund that, considering that's what funds the police. Um, but that is where we're at. Um, so the Democrats, they're fighting for the things in the CARES Act that were allowed to expire, you know, small business loans. Those were allowed to expire. In fact, there's a lot of money left in the PPP program, but it was just they didn't set the dates as when the emergency is over. They yeah. set end dates and those have come and gone. So, I mean, so much of this could be solved in a one page bill that just takes all of the end dates and makes it the end of the public emergency. It really doesn't have to be as complicated as they're making it. But she's fighting for the right things. The problem is that she wants to have it the way she wants to have it. Yeah. And I get that. But at the same time, we are now six months into this. Businesses are closing. People are hurting. Like, yeah, that's not not a good look. You, you, you mentioned before that there was a dropped ball from Pelosi initially, or maybe you insinuated this and I'm filling it in, that there was a drop ball from the Democrats in not asking for some of this or specifying what you've said now, the idea that there shouldn't be an end date, at least in, in before we know exactly what this is. Uh, is that something that maybe she is trying to make up for that, that she didn't ask for some of these things uh, earlier in the spring and early summer when, the, when the first sure. bills were passed? Yeah. I mean, the cares act, when that was written, you have to remember the house was completely MIA on the entire process. She wasn't in the room. The house was gone. So, I mean, just the way that bills are supposed to be crafted, anything that has anything to do with the budget is supposed to be started in the house. Yeah. And instead, this was written by the Senate. So she really wasn't there. She never had her opportunity because she didn't fight for it back during the CARES Act. And I remember back in April, I think she told it was Jake Tapper, who was concerned about all this and all of the expiration dates. And she told him to just calm down, like, we'll get it later. So she is trying to make up for that initial mistake, which was that they were in such a rush to get something done in March that they didn't take the extra week or two it would have taken to do it properly. So yeah, there's a lot of looking back and wishing she had done things differently, but we are where we are. 
Yeah. How, how much of this is because we're in an election year? I, I've, I've long said that whoever is running the simulation that we are living in as a sick sense of humor to put a pandemic in the middle of an election year. How much of this is just a fruit born from that? Oh, if anything, I think the election year, what's proving to me based on this happening during an election year is that we don't really matter that much to them because the fact that they passed the CARES Act and then the House just disappeared for two months is unconscionable to me. They've been on recess more than they've been working. That goes for the Senate too. They're really not too concerned about us. And here we are six months later, they still have no extra COVID relief. You would think in an election year that they would be more incentivized to pass something. So it just kind of goes to show me that as long as the investor class and their donors are satisfied, they really think that this stuff is okay. Like there's really not a lot of urgency at the top of the leadership of either party. So I think a lot of what we're seeing right now I'm disgusted that it's an election year because they're not doing anything to yeah. please us. You would think that they would be. Which, which is which is crazy to me because it seems, and I can understand why they wouldn't want to make any kind of meaningful effort that in any way could seem to rock the boat because it appears that we are so polarized that it doesn't matter what they do. As long as they have some media outlet that's saying, wow, the brave and bold Pelosi or the brave and cunning McConnell are fighting against the evildoers then they're going to be able to hide behind it. Whenever I have these conversations and, uh, uh, you know, we, we get, uh, you know, close to anything that's like, Hey, there's blood on, on both hands here. Uh, it, it becomes, well, no, it's really Pelosi who's holding the bill or it's really McConnell who's not doing it. It, it, it doesn't seem like there is any urgency despite the low approval ratings of Congress from the people to say, no, even my own representatives, d don't tell me about the labor. Show me the baby. Like, like, give me the thing that you're supposed to do. We're the richest country the world has ever seen. And we're in a once in a century pandemic. If there's ever time to peel open the purse traps, it's right now. Yeah. And the thing is, though, that with my audience, because I... <laughs> to my own detriment, <laughs> I haven't picked a political side. Yeah. I just kind of call it as I see it. And so I, my audience is like really wonderful because they're, they're with me. And I have seen so much fury from everyone yeah. about this. So it's like we are told that we're divided based on like left, right, Democrat, Republican. What I am witnessing in my own life, my family, my audience, everything is that us workers, those of us that earn money and paychecks, we're not divided. Yeah. Um, we really aren't. We are told that we are by a corporate media that is in the same investor class universe. I mean, every single one of them gets paid by a company that makes money off the stock market and pleases investors. You know, we have to keep that in mind that we are being told by the investor class that we are super divided and we are the problem. But when you split it as workers who are getting rocked right now versus the investor class, there's no division down here. We're all angry. We might have different reasons. And, you know, a lot of us are being, our emotions are being played on. Uh, we're being told that we're divided by race. We're divided by gender. We're divided by all of these things that we can't control. But when it comes to the finances, when it comes to the money, those of us down here that are watching our favorite small businesses go under, yeah, we're in total agreement about this. Those of us that are having trouble paying our rent, which is pretty much anyone that has to leave their house to go to work, we're in total agreement on this. And I'm the type of person that like my neighbors walking down the street, we all know someone that's affected by this in a financial way. Like we're getting financially rocked. 
and they're not. And when I say they, the vast majority of our members of Congress are in that circle, you know? So it's like when I look at it, not as a left-right Democrat-Republican division, yeah. but investor class versus the rest of us, a lot of this makes a lot more sense. Well, let, let's talk about the mechanics a little bit more. You mentioned that one of the opportunities to get this done passed by because there was a continuing resolution for funding of the government. It was essentially a fairly short, uh, not even a punt, like a real tap of the can over the line yeah. of the election. But... Uh, this could have been an opportunity. There was whispers of uh, the idea that maybe uh, uh, Pelosi would, would would hold this up a little bit to make sure that some of the, the, the COVID stimulus went through. What can you tell us about just that process and the feasibility that this could have been tacked on to a, a refunding of the government? Yeah. So after the CARES Act passed, one of the things that I was kind of banking on for the next real opportunity for COVID relief was this government funding. Because what I've witnessed year after year after year is that, you know, both sides, House and Senate, will pass messaging bills. But the stuff that really becomes law gets attached to government funding because that has to be signed into law because there's repercussions if it isn't. There's a government shutdown if that's not signed. And so I call them dingleberries. The, <laughs> the uh, professional class calls them riders. But, sure. So I was expecting COVID relief dingleberries on this. And the whole like political back and forth was that Pelosi just wanted a clean continuing resolution. They didn't want to have anyone be responsible for a government shutdown right before an election. So this is where your previous question, like where does the election come into this? Yeah. Them not using this as leverage that is a an election related thing for sure. Um, although I personally would have liked some COVID related dingleberries, so it didn't really work out for them. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I think that's the, the the question is, and this is one of those things that make a lot of sense in the moment. It will not make sense to historians or even really people past St. Patrick's Day next year. <laughs> but when you think about, okay, well, right now. The idea is amongst Democratic circles that Joe Biden is gliding to a victory. So you don't want to roil the waters and you don't want Congress to do a thing. And so it's like, well, if Biden loses, they'll look really stupid. If Biden wins, then maybe they'll be able to say, well, thank God we didn't give anybody COVID money or else Biden wouldn't have won. Uh, yeah, but right. <laughs> but I think uh, it's it, it's one of those galaxy brain things that that is very 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 much of the moment, and that's the only reason why I would say probably more than your perspective. I do think that if no matter what, everybody in D.C. is reading the same three websites and they're all yeah. talking to each other and they're all uh, this is an echo chamber inside an echo chamber that feeds other echo chambers that they do believe they live and die on all of this who's up, who's down, horse race stuff. And and unfortunately, I guess it is the detachment from the people that leads them to to not even consider the like, hey, but what if we just did direct payments? Or what if we just did the pay, the Paycheck prote Protection Program or just eliminated the the uh, expiration dates on, on a continuing resolution bill? Yeah, and that's, and now with COVID, they're even more disconnected from us because they're not going into grocery stores. They're not talking to their mailman. Like they're even more in their bubble. So yes, I 100% agree with that. Um, and so the the goal was to get a clean continuing resolution, just kick the can. And they also caved on the date. 
which kills me. Instead of making <laughs> sure that this got kicked until after Trump was gone, they kicked it only till December 11th, yeah. which means that no matter what happens, this crazy person is going to get the chance to have his own dingleberries put on there because he holds the pen. So yeah. whatever deal Congress has, like they have to also deal with Donald Trump. So it's just mind boggling to me. So they kicked the can. But the thing was that Mitch McConnell, after they supposedly had a deal for a clean resolution, wanted $30 billion for the Commodity Credit, Commodity Credit Corporation, which is nicknamed a slush fund for pretty good reasons because it was given such broad authorities that this $30 billion a year, as long as it can be said to be used for, for helping United States agriculture, they can use the money for it. So yeah. he wanted that replenished. And so Nancy Pelosi fought for $8 billion for money for it's basically food stamps that replace school lunches and school breakfasts. And they also did expand that program, which is good to include kids in daycares and then kids in hybrid schools now that that's a thing. Um, but what fascinated me by reading the continuing resolution, and like, let's also keep in mind that this thing was signed the day that we found out that Trump has COVID. So no one was talking about no. what was actually no. in this thing. I did find two dingleberries that did make it on there All that right. caught my eye. Count the dings. Count the dings. Count the dings. And the two most interesting one to me was that they funded two new submarines, which are going to carry and fire nuclear weapons. So awesome. That awesome. took precedence. Good, good thing we picked that up. For sure. And then they also extended the authority for the government to pay the employee salaries of two daycare centers that take care of the children of the people who work in the legislative branch. So Congress. <laughs> and the date on that one goes until the end of the public emergency. Oh, so that one doesn't have that one doesn't have a uh, an expiration date. Amazing. No. Amazing. They paid for their own daycares to stay in existence. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, well, all right. Let, let me uh, get you with one more thing before we let you go. And, and that is, of course, the, the big question of the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. There was, uh, I thought, far less sturm and drawing around this than, than I was expecting, considering I've heard and, and uh, heard, heard political messaging literally my entire life. Before I was able to understand words, the political messaging was vote for me from every level of government because I will either force or prevent the court from tilting one way or another. This is the actual tilting of the court one way. And, you know, as soon as Mitt Romney threw in the towel, that was pretty much it, uh, even in terms of the, the messaging from the Democrats. But it seems that with this COVID outbreak on the Republican side, that there might be some leeway for procedurally the Democrats to put the brakes on this a little bit. Uh, what can you tell us about quorum and and uh, this two hour rule and all the the sort of Senate shenanigans that Schumer is putting on now or might have the ability to put on if Republican senators are not able to physically make it into the chamber. So as far as her getting confirmed to the court, all of that two hour rule, all of that is noise. I don't feel the need to pay any attention to it. What really matters is do the Republicans have the votes? And so do they have the votes before Trump leaves office? Yes. Yeah. The question is, do they have it before the election? So in that regard, we now have three Republican senators who are down with COVID. 
Now, the reason that this matters is unlike the House of Representatives that changed their rules to allow proxy voting on the floor, the Senate doesn't have that, which means that they have to show up physically to vote to confirm her. What's also really interesting about this is two out of the three six senators are on the Judiciary Committee, which her nomination has to come out of the Judiciary Committee first, and then it goes to the Senate floor, which is like the big vote. And so they can have their hearings remotely, and they intend to. But will they be well enough to go into the Senate, and will they be reckless enough with everyone else's health to do so? So Ron Johnson said that he will show up in a moon suit if he has to. And so what that tells me is that the Republicans want this so badly, and based on their their behavior up until this point with COVID, it wouldn't surprise me at all, is even if they are sick, that they would find a way to still show up and vote. Because Mitch McConnell is not the type of person who's going to you know, give up this opportunity to change the court for generations just because it might make a lot of people sick. So um, what it comes down to is the recklessness of the Republicans. You know, will they show up sick to vote? And if they don't, we are so close to the edge there. Like there are two Republicans, um, Collins and Murkowski, who said that they're going to vote. No, we have to count on that being true. Yeah. But I mean, they need, but they, but they also, they also hated Amy Coney Barrett even during the Kavanaugh thing. Like that was, that was apparently the, the counterweight to them voting for Kavanaugh was how much they were transparent in saying that they didn't like Amy Coney Barrett then. So yeah, I think it would, I mean, there's reasons to think that they'll stay no votes, but if you take three, six senators and two, no senators, that gives, that takes away McConnell's ability to pass her through before the election. So it all comes well, down when are, to when are how we, sick when are we get. looking when are we looking at this vote? Because it's like the week before the election, right? Oh, like, like not even the week, like days. Yeah. Like days. it was if, if if the election obviously is on a Tuesday, I think it's on like the Thursday before uh, uh before the election, which would mean then under their best case scenario. Their best case scenario. And so that yeah. Is there any quorum kind of thing that could delay the Judiciary Committee? So the Judiciary Committee, I don't really think so. It's all about the floor votes. And one of the most interesting strategies to me, if they have the cojones to do this, which I doubt it, but the House of Representatives could actually screw with this by passing war powers resolutions or um, Congressional Review Acts, because those take precedent over anything else. Gotcha. And so they could screw with the Senate schedule if Nancy Pelosi chose to do so. But I mean, I when does it comes not, to it, doing baldy things, like uh. I, also, if they were going to do that, I would think they would be messaging about that by now. I, I don't think that that comes out of comes out of nowhere. Uh, specifically, if again, their the galaxy brain strategy is that Biden is on a glide path and they don't want to do anything that might disrupt that. So, uh, the, the, but I'm just saying that's what what could they do? Yeah, that's probably the best. So mostly it strategy. is it is the House because you did hear initial things of oh well they could impeach him again or oh they could they, they could, could pass a war power thing and those would go to the top of the pile in terms of what the Senate would have to deal with, which considering they don't have a lot of room. But if we're looking at that final vote, then what? I would say if you look at the CDC guidelines on when you are allowed to get back into the world, it's 10 days from initial symptoms. Yeah. So what we really wouldn't be looking at are the people that are sick now. It would be the people that get sick in the next two or three weeks, the next really two weeks. Like anybody that would get sick from this outbreak 
uh, uh, if this continues to ripple through, which again, we saw Stephen Miller yesterday. We've seen more staffers. That's yeah. not outside the realm of the house possi- was, we found out this morning, um, yeah. a Democrat who had interacted with Mike Lee, but also keep in mind that that 10 days is if you are okay. What if one of these three people ends up really, really sick? So yeah, it would be, it would be it. The, the CDC guidelines are 10 days. If you have had no fever over the last 24 hours. So yes, yeah. unless you are incapacitated and in the hospital and something like that, then obviously you are, you are, uh, uh, out of it, but otherwise but these calculations, let's just keep in mind. Yeah. Are all based on the Republicans following those CDC guideline guidelines. And sure. based on what I'm seeing at the white house, I don't really have much faith that they're going to follow the CDC guidelines. Do you? Well, it does seem like the like the president's specific messaging from his doctor is, in my mind, built so they can say that they followed the CDC guidelines and Donald Trump can go and debate. Because the, the, the things that they are highlighting are almost word for word out of the CDC recommendations on specifically point, pinpointing when his symptoms began, specifically pinpointing when his fever has run out. And if, if they are using that kind of messaging, I believe now, whether or not you believe that messaging is a different story, but yeah, th- the fact that they are using that messaging makes me believe that that is something that they are going to hang their hat on. If, and when they get pushback from the Joe Biden campaign, that that debate is even happening. But yeah, I, I would say from the white house. Yeah. The question then becomes in the Senate where you've had some people say that they won't even take a COVID test, uh, which is yeah. mind blowing to me. Uh, uh, how you are going to see that, and whether or not, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, cocaine Mitch runs a tight ship. <laughs> whether or not, <laughs> whether or not, you know, they're they're going to risk uh, the ire of the turtle to uh, uh, to jeopardize what would otherwise be his crowning achievement. You know, putting three yeah. justices on the court because he bet on Donald Trump when nobody thought that was a good idea. So who knows? Yeah. And the word that I've used to describe the Republicans, especially in the Senate is ruthless. And so I think you're right that they're going to say whatever they have to, to say that they followed the CDC guidelines, but I've seen some wildly irresponsible behavior by, in terms of health and safety by the Republicans. I mean, Chuck Grassley, you just brought that up. Won't even get tested. And so, which he know, should. Mike the way Lee, he tweets, he he needs to get he needs to get tested just for for the, the 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 weird pigeon he found. That man's tweets are the weirdest. What weird pigeon? Have you not know. have you not seen this? No, Chuck Grassley's Chuck Grassley's Twitter is just it's uh uh let me see uh, uh here uh, do me a favor and tell people about where they can find more of your podcast and I'm gonna finish this interview with Chuck Grassley's weird pigeon tweet. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, Chuck Grassley is the best on Twitter, by the way. Um, so you can find me at congressionaldish.com is my, well, my podcast is Congressional Dish. You can find that anywhere podcasts are found, but um, congressionaldish.com and in your your app is where you can find my show notes because I give everyone my sources because I don't expect anyone to trust what I say. It's the most important thing I do. So go ahead and check that out. All right, here we go. Chuck Grassley. Uh, this was tweeted September 19th. And, and let me also point out that Chuck Grassley is fourth in line for for the yes. president that that <laughs> if if Trump were to die more of a likelihood than it would be otherwise before last week and if Pence were to die and if Pelosi were to be sidelined then this man would be the commander in chief tweeting on September 19th if you lost your pet pigeon 
spelled P-I-D-G-I-N slash <laughs> it's dead in my front yard, my Iowa farm, all caps, just discovered, here are identifiers, and then gives the bird's band numbers. Uh, sorry for the bad news. Chuck Lovely. Grassley, fourth in line <laughs> on his official uh, Twitter account. So I- I'm glad that I was able to bring that to you uh, uh, at-, at the end here of our of our interview. Oh my God, thank you for giving me this <laughs> crucial information. That is amazing. And by the way, Chuck Grassley <laughs> won't take a COVID test. Just take the COVID test. The pigeon would have wanted it, Chuck. Yes, like you could be the pigeon. Take care of yourself, <laughs> sir. <laughs> oh, Jen Briney, thank you. Thank you so much. I think you have earned many new listeners here today. Uh, uh, it was an honor talking to you. It was so fun. Thanks for having me. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. Thank you to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, more of you than there's ever been, and I'm going to work harder for you than I have ever worked. I'm going to try to go five wide each and every week until the election. Five podcasts a week. That's what I'm going to try and do. Again, next week we got the DTNS PX3 co-production about the future of gig work, specifically AB5 and Proposition 22 out here in California. How could it how it might affect you nationally? We got Andrew Heaton coming into town, and it's all thanks to you guys who put money in. Greatly appreciate it. I actually had a conversation with Jen Briney, who is similarly doing an independent podcast. And uh, uh, we were talking about how much it's it's free. It's, it, it is, like, honestly, it gets down to the purity of us doing what we want to do for, uh, for you. Doing good work. That's it. Purity of, of doing good work is made possible because of all of you who support content like this. It just means the world to me. Uh, who else means the world to me is our Titanic $10 tier. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory Pie, App, Crookie McCrookface, Justin Ryan Egan, D Laser, Rob, Vote for Trump 2020, Martin, Government Unfiltered, no, Government Unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Milius, David, Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious, nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, just another pilot, Mike, uh, that is middle-aged Mike, Jim, the Jen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, Andrew, Matthew, and James. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. A reminder. Email in theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young and get on my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Until next time, a reminder that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more are talking about politics. But this is the only program with the cojones to talk about all. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.